Greetings and salutations, friends, and welcome back to The Arcade. We are your video game podcast here with you once again for the month of July. How's it going, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages? I am Mike the Legend, who's so glad to be back with you once again here on this program. So glad that you are listening to us once again as we continue this program listener relationship. It's been serving us so well for these 15 plus years here on this program. I made a mistake by saying that number out loud instead of just thinking it, because saying it out loud makes it seem like a big number, and now I feel kind of old. Yes, that's a huge mistake that um, you should learn to not uh, replicate, my friend. But yes, this week I'm Dennis, the man who, for the first time in nearly 20 years, gets to have a summer off. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Back the truck up there, muchacho. What's this summer off business? Uh, you should just be putting your nose to the grindstone, working away for the man, producing widgets and whatever else the man demands of you, uh, and putting in your nine to five. What's all this about summers off? What are you, a student again? Oh, no, no, I'm not a student again, but you know, uh, not that I need to announce anything on this program or anything, but you know, just, um, I've basically, uh, I, I get to start a new position at a new place of employment soon. And, um, yeah, the, the time I've given myself between ending one job and starting the new one is a month. So that month happens now. <laughs> it starts now. So I get a month off. It's not the two months that you would get when you were a child in school, perhaps as your quote unquote summer break. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's what I'm considering a summer break as an adult anyways. Um, so yeah, feels pretty good. Well, the, uh, the, the clock is ticking. You better, uh, get to stepping and get to enjoying that, those, uh, next couple weeks because they will fly by. Yes. Oh, would that it were that we weren't in the middle of, or towards the end of COVID times and things, <laughs> you know, travel restrictions were still in place and, you know, I mean, granted, things are starting to open up here finally because more and more people are, you know, double vaxxed plus their two weeks or whatever, which is good. Both Mike the Legend and myself, I think we're planning on maybe at some point here, cautionarily, you know, optimistic that we're going to maybe start recording in person again, which will be a very strange thing to start doing. It, it will but, be. The uh, the idea, I think, as I've mentioned before in this program of, you know, uh, a quote-unquote normal life resuming, um, now as we have been kind of in our, you know, separate bubbles and pods for at least nine, ten months now, um, yeah. feels like a weird thought, a weird, strange thought that uh, almost have to reintegrate to society again and uh, uh, refamiliarize myself with uh, societal norms, which I have uh, gleefully <laughs> uh, not needed to know for the past nine, ten months. This means yeah. pants will have to be worn. Yes, pants have been reintroduced to the regimen of uh, life, I suppose you can say. That's uh, that's really really my big hang-up. I uh, don't want to have to wear pants again. Why? Why um, do I have to wear pants? Why am I stricken with wearing pants? Fair. <laughs> I mean, granted, to hide my shame and protect others, but still, why? <laughs> yes, <laughs> To prevent your shame from spilling into the thoughts and minds of various other people that you encounter in life. Although, um, really, that's their problem. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> at, yeah. Hey. Because, sure. I have no comment. <laughs> hey, I'm just living my truth, okay? Fair. Fair. <laughs> But it's, uh, yes, it, it does feel a, a weird thought. And I'm sure we're not uh, the only people out there having these, uh, you know, 
uh, weird thoughts, weird thoughts, apprehensions, you know, nervousness, almost like the, uh, you know, starting a, a new grade at school again, you know, like yeah. the butterflies in the stomach, like, wait, how, how, how does this go again? You know, do I remember everything? Oh no. Oh no. And then trying to remember the process in your head of how to actually use one of the lockers for your locker. Yeah. Was it right, left, right? Do I have to like, how many times do I have to spin the thing around again? Ah, I don't remember. I haven't used one of these in two, three months. Ah. Ah, ah, ah. And as I recall, I think it was like two full turns to the right, one full turn to the left, and then to the third digit. <laughs> yes. That, that, that's, you know, the axiom I always put in my brain, which I could be entirely wrong, but that's just what, what is in there as a remnant, uh, from the school days. But, uh, yes, you will get to enjoy, uh, some monicum of summer. So, uh, hope you enjoy it. I'd imagine there'll be a fair bit of video games to be played, catching up on backlog or just, you know, working through something that you're already making progress on. Yeah. So for me, it's amazing. It's going to be, you know, a relatively recent game. I, I recently purchased a game called Disco Elysium and, uh, started playing it and, um, I'm greatly enjoying it. It's a very strange, but can highly recommend it. It's basically the closest thing that a game has come to an actual, like what you would like, how a novel would play out in your head. I think. Interesting. Like it's, it's very strange, but I, I enjoy, I, I can't even explain it because it's too weird. Um, your character is basically like, you know, coming to after a bender and has no recollection of who he is or what he's done. And then basically piecing his immediate life together and also trying to piece together clues to a crime that he's investigating because he realizes he's a cop. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just kind of out of control bananas. Like as you're regaining your faculties and stuff, like you're basically fighting with your whole brain and a lot of like the actual skill checks and stuff that you have to do or just through conversations with yourself. <laughs> so it's uh it's a weird, weird game and I'm enjoying it. And really who among us hasn't been there or had that experience? <laughs> just where we got so obliterated the night before that we really forgot how to live. <laughs> yeah, we forgot even what our job is and then wake up to find, oh, we're cops. <laughs> Son <laughs> of a bitch. I mean, that's, that's definitely not a thing that I've ever, uh, <laughs> necessarily experienced myself, but you know, um, uh, uh, yeah, that's all I've got. Fair enough. But, uh, are you making a, uh, a catalog or just a, a list of what you want to get through or you're just going to fly by the seat of your pants? Well, uh, I think there's only really two or three things at this point that I want to get through and really that's all I'm going to try to, you know, earmark off. It's only a month after all. It's not like a whole year sabbatical or something ridiculous. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get through this game Then I'm actually, you know, properly going to restart and hopefully get through breath of the wild finally. Cause you know, I, I, I played a, you know, probably 60 something hours of that game, but never finished it. And I figure, well, I don't want it to be another Witcher three where I just kind of like put a lot of time into it, forget entirely everything about it and then never come back to it. So like Witcher 3, I eventually did go back to it and do everything in it. And now I've beaten it so thoroughly that I never have to play it again. So I want to maybe at least do the same for Breath of the Wild. I think it seems like it's a game worthy of that type of attention. Um, And yeah, beyond that, not really anything else. No real gaming plans otherwise. Doing a bunch of stuff around the house and, you know, whatnot. So that'll be good as well. 
Excellent. Yes, uh, just being able to go at your own pace and do what you want uh, will feel nice, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. And then, of course, the the grind will gear back up and uh, you'll be slaving away, putting your nose to the grindstone and making widgets for the man again. Exactly. (laughs) Just what I'm here to do, baby. (laughs) Precisely. Couldn't have raised it any better. Yes. But, but, uh, uh, but that's move, me. That's that, me for now. <laughs> that is you. That is you for now and for the next uh, foreseeable few weeks. But uh, in the meantime, you mentioned that uh, uh, you um, have uh, basically been off and uh, not really uh, experienced a summer break in the last, you know, 20-ish years, uh, as, you know, both you and I are men of a distinguished age. <laughs> yes. But in that time of uh, our many trips around uh, the sun, we've also spent a lot of time online. And, uh, of course, we have learned not to read the comments online, but uh, it's also sometimes interesting to read comments online and read uh, read forums for things online, threads of forums and whatnot online. And sometimes they can be interesting, sometimes they can be depressing, sometimes they can be painfully stupid. But uh, regardless of whatever forum you come across, you're always going going to find a couple people in your travels who will do their best to convince everyone else on the forum and anyone reading it that they are the smartest person in the room. Yeah, no, just for, for those of those listeners who might be too young to have ever gone on forums or to think to go on forums, forums are basically the pre-Facebook, pre-Facebook, pre-Twitter, pre-social media experience you would have in interacting with others on the internet. It wasn't super connected and it wasn't like hyper available like social media is. It was basically just essentially, you know, post a thread, like start a thread, which is essentially like similar to posting maybe a new Reddit thing. And then, you know, you wait for replies or you can reply to threads for various reasons. It was really the basis for social media and, you know, it's kind of a little bit of a quaint thing now because, you know, social media has largely replaced forums, but there are still a few forums that are still out there and alive and ticking. And one of them is, uh, the, the forum for a game called War Thunder, which from what I understand is a military game or a, a game that builds itself. Well, it's an MMO that builds itself as a very comprehensive free to play cross platform military game dedicated to aviation, armored vehicles and naval craft. So that type of thing, like if you're really into military stuff, this might be your bag, but uh yeah, I, I think it is developed by, well, I, anyways, I, I won't get too far into speculation of things, but yeah, why are we talking about this? Well, we're talking about this because uh, with any, you know, passionate community for something, there's a good chance there's a forum. And uh, very recently, someone on the forums for this War Thunder game decided to uh, uh, perhaps go a bit too far and become a bit too nitpicky about uh, one of the one element of the game that uh, they were displeased with and felt could be improved. Uh, and specific, they were... They had issues and were nitpicking the design of the Challenger 2 tank that is a vehicle used in this War Thunder MMO game. And uh, again, anyone who's into, I guess, war games or just uh, military 
uh, uh, ephemera and whatnot can be very deeply into it. Oh, yeah. You know? I guess there's something about it where if you're uh, basically a man of, you know, you cross a certain age, you either get deep into, you know, World War II history or you get into smoking meats and here's the form for, you know, the World War II history just through a computer game uh, slash current militariness. So this one user named fear underscore not N-A-U-G-H-T was nitpicking and pointing out some some issues with the design that the developer had used for the design of this Challenger 2 tank in the game, writing uh, in a post on July 14th, quote, as I've stated a fair few times now, the complexity of the construction is sometimes difficult to see slash show with pictures. It is so complex in the Challenger 2's case that I don't completely blame Gaijin, the developers of this MMO, from getting it incorrect. All I try to do is point out the areas where they are incorrect. Okay. So not long after that, this user, fear underscore not, uh, uploaded some altered screenshots of documents that they claim to be were from uh, the official Army Equipment's uh, support publication for the Challenger 2 tank, a.k.a. official UK military documents. Yeah. The images uh, that were submitted by this user were meant to be apparently an example of where the developer went wrong in their design of this Challenger 2 tank, uh, but these images were eventually removed by Gaijin Entertainment due to the classified nature of the information that was being shared. One of the moderators on this forum then wrote back, quote, we have written, we have written confirmation from the Ministry of Defense that this document remains classified. By continuing to disseminate, uh, to disseminate it, you are in violation of the official secrets act, secrets act, as stated by the warning on the cover of the document. An offense which can carry up to a 14-year prison sentence if prosecuted. Of this, you are already aware. As a service person, you have signed a declaration that you understand the act and what actions it compels you to take. Every time you post this, you place us, international representatives of Gaijin, especially any UK citizens in hot water, as the warning so helpfully states that unauthorized retention of a protected document is an offense. End quote. So the user, fear not here, or fear underscore not, was posting classified military images to basically win their argument. Yeah, so... I'm sure for anyone who has posted on a forum, you've been in that situation before where like, you know, you're right about something and no matter what, you just kind of have to be right. Or like you, you've, it usually wasn't me who was in this situation. Like I've, I've, you know, talked to people who were like, had to be right at any cost. And you know, I'm not saying that I ever really egg people like that on particularly, but sometimes, you know, tone doesn't come through properly in text. So sometimes people might just read like an, oh, okay, cool, as like sarcastic maybe. Like someone might have just meant it like, oh, that's interesting. Oh, interesting. Okay, whatever. Cool. Doesn't matter to me. But yeah, it seems like you're right. Cool. But they might be read that as like a dismissive, like whatever. Okay, fine. Cool. You're right. So then <laughs> depending on who you are, you might go to as – we look at here ridiculous extremes to kind of prove your point. What this reminds me of is an old Dave Chappelle show skit uh, called when keeping it real goes wrong, <laughs> which is basically, you know, people in a situation where, you know, an argument might arise and rather than, you know, playing cool, they 
choose to quote unquote keep it real, <laughs> which, you know, is code for just basically like lose it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's what this kind of seems to me. It's like, if you're like, well, they can't be that high up in the military that they, you know, would know, well, wouldn't know that this is an offense or like, they, they probably knew that this was an offense, but maybe they're not that important and they're just trying to find any way just to seem more important than they actually are by maybe bringing these facts out. But if they were actually that, like, well, I don't know, they were trusted enough with, to have, you know, clearance for this information should imply that, you know, maybe they shouldn't be spreading it around, right? <laughs> like, like, this is bad. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's bad. One, the uh, dissemination of classi- classified documents in any circumstance is bad and should be punished. Uh, that places uh, your military, your country, yourself, uh, your, your troop members at tremendous risk. Uh, but two, to use it for this purpose, this particular instance, try and win an argument or support the argument you are making that the design of a tank in this computer game is not as accurate as it potentially could be, seems, oh, I don't know, cuckoo bananas is not even a strong enough term for this. No, like, it's it's crazy, like, it's really crazy. Like, like, possibly a, you know, well, like they said, like, it's, <laughs> you're, you're in violation of the Official Secrets Act, like, it's basically treason against your country at that point, right? Uh, yes. Yes, it uh, would be, and likely uh, prosecuted as such, or potentially prosecuted as such. And you're you're doing it just for... You are so into this particular game, War Thunder, which is an MMO uh, that is revolves around, uh, you know, military vehicles from aviation, armored vehicles, nasal, naval craft, y- yada, 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 fine. There's a certain amount of obliviousness to this particular user, fear underscore not that, they thought it was okay to go to the length of posting classified military images about the tank in question. Yeah. The question then becomes, is that someone you really want serving in the armed forces? Yeah, and the answer should be no, (laughs) right? I would hope so. I call me crazy. I don't know. I don't know what sort of ramifications will come to this user. Uh, that is likely news that will not come across our wires and news feeds. But uh, at least on this particular forum for the War Thunder game, uh, the user fear underscore not received a warning. The thread was closed. And that was that. Yeah, but they do raise a very interesting point. The That Templar there, the senior technical moderator, mm-hmm. that... You're not just kind of putting yourself at risk of, you know, um, like hot water here. You're putting like a whole lot of people at risk here because now like this is kind of like similar. Well, it's you're giving people knowledge that they didn't ask for and can be in trouble for having. So. Now there's like this whole, it could potentially be an international incident, right? Like, it's like, I just wanted to, you know, chat with my friends about this game that I like. Why do I now 
have like if I've if you've accessed a thread too, like because it's in your web browser, now all that the images and everything go into your web browser cache. So now they're on your computer. They can delete the file from their server, but your web browser cache on your computer retains files for a certain amount of time. It could be like a year, depending on how you have things set up. So now there's who knows how many copies of this, you know, not declassified document <laughs> that have gone onto people's computers who have, you know, were just kind of out of curiosity clicking to open a thread just to see what it was all about. Now <laughs> I'd be a little bit mad if I just, you know, clicked on the thread and realized, oh crap, now I have some national secrets for England on my computer. Great. <laughs> I didn't ask for this. Well, my day is shot. Yeah, it's like, I mean, it's not, I'm not saying that, like, you're going to be called and, you know, or, like, you know, but who knows what could happen, right? Like, like that, they now have to worry about this as, an, as what they call an attack surface in terms of, you know, potential hackers. Before, if this was just a classified document, they knew that it was going to be within their own file systems and, you know, there's probably some virtual private network that or at the very least like a firewall or something blocking people from getting into their own network where all these files are host like hosted and like just exist only there they're not backed up offsite or anything like that now that this guy has posted this thing on the internet and who knows how many people have viewed this forum now these files exist everywhere so now every single computer that has the file on it is a vulnerability point for you know people who might be looking for vulnerabilities in these particular models of tanks. So not good. And this is to say nothing of the people who came across this information or learned that this information was posted on this particular forum and then went and deliberately, uh, you know, acquired the image, saved it to their file, distributed it to whoever might be interested in knowing the, the weak points of this challenger Two tank. Um, because the classified information was posted, you know, the nefarious actors who might come into this information in ways that they might not have otherwise had access to. Yep. So good job. You fear underscore not. You have uh, done your best to instill a lot of fear in uh, people over things that they shouldn't have to fear about. Yeah. <laughs> All because the armor on this challenger two tank wasn't quite the way you thought it should be. Yeah, exactly. Like, and it was like his argument wasn't that there's some major fundamental design flaw and he was presenting the images as look, see, this is how it really is. Blah, blah, blah. No, it was basically having to do with armor placement on the tank. Yeah. And I think it's like one corner is exposed in the game when it's not in real life or something like that. Yeah. Now, granted, you might think that's not a big deal, but knowing exactly where the armor is on a tank is a big deal. Even if it means it's everywhere, it means that, you know, anyone who might be, you know, considering how, like, like any enemies of the state of, you know, England or, well, UK, I should say, I, I suppose. Britain. Britain. Anyone who's an enemy of Britain now knows to shift their 
their tactics. They they might have had a tactic where they were going to try to take out tanks. Now they know to totally ignore the tanks because it's like, well, that's going to be a losing battle. Now we can move on to something else, which is a big deal. It absolutely is a big deal. It, uh, it could have major long, you know, uh, standing implications coming from this. Again, because someone got a little uppity and nitpicky about the design of a tank in a computer game. Yeah. These are crazy times we live in. Yeah, they, they sure are. Crazy, messed up times. Uh, but speaking of crazy, messed up times, let's move on to our second ludicrous lead-off this week. And uh, on last week's episode, we kind of got carried away talking about only a few stories. And one of those stories uh, that basically broke right before we had started our recording session on the previous episode was the news of the $1.5 million price point being paid for the still-sealed copy of Super Mario 64 at an auction hosted by Heritage Auctions. Uh, initially, we were going to talk about the $870,000 that was paid for a still sealed copy of Legend of Zelda for the NES, uh, one of the rarest copies of the game in existence, still sealed, of course, still sealed and professionally graded. These are all yeah. important details. Uh, but then you, br- you, you know, read and uh, had heard of the crazy amount paid for Super Mario 64, so we spent a lot of time talking about that, rightfully so. That uh, took up the air in the room, as it should have, but uh, what happened uh, you know, with these two auctions for Legend of Zelda and the copy of Super Mario 64 is they were part of a larger classic games auction that happened last weekend, put on by Heritage Auctions, and... Those were the two biggest amounts. You know, Legend of Zelda selling for 870000 Mario 64 getting $1.56 Those were the two largest amounts. But there was uh, a few other auctions that brought in some ridiculous amounts as well, some impressive amounts, and some other ones that just really make you scratch your head and go, I don't understand, you know, what's collectible and what's not anymore. I don't understand evaluations. Like, yeah. that was happening at the high end with Mario 64, going for 1.56 mil, but it was happening on the low end of things as well. Yeah. So, well, first of all, I, well, we can talk, I guess we can talk about the low end things. Um, first, the, the two notable, uh, items that kind of sprung to mind from this auction were a copy of the Elder Scrolls V Skyrim for Xbox 360 going for $600 for some reason and a copy of uh, 2010's Red Dead Redemption for Xbox 360 selling for $384. So neither one of those games are particularly collectible. I mean, Skyrim exists on every system that has come out in the last 11 years. Um, and, you know, if you don't have Skyrim at this point, you probably just don't play video games because even people who don't really particularly care about role-playing games, I'm sure have a copy of Skyrim. Yeah, um, you you basically can't swing a cat at somebody's uh, video game catalog and not find a copy of Skyrim. Yeah, so yeah, like the, so low end of things sure like when we're talking about the crazy amounts of money, but still how like how you can get $600 for a copy of Skyrim? I mean, even if it's just a sealed copy, sure, but 
Does that seem insane? That does, that seems insane to me. It does seem insane to me as well. You're not alone in feeling that that's an insane amount, uh, because it does seem insane given that, uh, uh Sky- Skyrim was a huge selling game. Uh, like it's not a collectible thing at this point yet. It isn't. It's only 10, 11 years old. And, uh, you know, granted, this is probably a still sealed copy, professionally graded. I'm sure graded out very, you know, well, very reasonably. I'd, I'd say a 9.0 and above, if not more. Uh, but even so, it's Skyrim. I, I don't get it. it. Is there something just off? Is there some sort of manufacturing flaw on this particular copy of Skyrim that warranted a $600 price point? Even if it's from an early print run of games of, uh, early print run of Skyrim for the Xbox 360, there were many, many thousands of those games printed at that time, and they are still in circulation. Yeah. So the point that makes that uh, this particular copy of Skyrim for the Xbox 360 worth a $600 uh, sale price baffles me and I struggle to find it. Uh, I'm reminded of my own personal, you know, history of a couple years ago when I was adding Mario 64 to my collection and because uh, I didn't have it at that point, but I was adding it on the secondary market off eBay and I think I paid, you know, maybe one you know, like a hundred to one hundred and fifty dollars somewhere in you know there to get you know the box, the the papers, everything. You know, I wanted it complete in box. That's my mo, and I got it, and I paid you know a price I kind of bristled at, but I wanted it, and that's just what the market was at that point in time. Even so, six hundred dollars. Why? Good God, why? Yeah, I, and and the, this is the low end of the scale. So like. Like, yeah, Skyrim went for that amount. Red Dead Redemption went for 384. Like, these are not, in my eyes, collectible games yet. They're only 10, 11 years old, and they sold millions of copies. Like, uh, like nothing super standout-ish about these games either, other than, you know, maybe sealed, complete in box, good condition. And that's it. Um, you know, bearing in mind, these games would have retailed at the time for 60, 70 bucks. And you would think that it would maybe be about that plus, you know, simple inflation. If that, right? Like, so maybe 120 bucks, 130 bucks, maybe, but 600, like 300, almost 400 to 600 American dollars for just sealed, you know, Xbox 360 games. Like that's insane to me. That's those price points for for these two games, Skyrim and Red Dead Redemption. Just the Xbox 360 copies uh, of those games baffle me more than the price points at the high end. Yeah, because at the high end, at the very least, you know, there's an argument to be made for each of these things. You know, in a, a video game collector's eyes. To me, anyways, when you, you look at the, the higher end of things, like, like, as we mentioned, like, you know, the Mario 64, I mean, I, no, granted, I don't get the price it actually fetched, but I can see why it might fetch a bigger price, you know, like, in terms of, like, collectability, nothing to say about the prices that they actually are, like, to me, they seem at least 10 times too high, <laughs> you know, 
in my opinion. But yeah, like the the higher end of things, you know, being obviously as you mentioned, Super Mario sixty four being the most expensive of them now at one point five six million, and Legend of Zelda for eight hundred seventy thousand. There was also a sealed copy of Super Mario World for 360,000 and an early copy of the first Tomb Raider for 144,000. So sure, these are now, you know, you know, 20 plus years old titles at this point. So maybe approaching collectible status. But again, it's kind of crazy to me that these games all fetch these prices. Like these are all common games. Like, Tomb Raider sold millions of copies. It was like a smash hit. Same thing with Super Mario World. Like, everyone who had a Super Nintendo had Super Mario World. Absolutely. Uh, likely because you got the uh, the bundle where Mario World was included with your console, uh, with the box of the Super Nintendo. Yeah. So, I mean, sure, it's unusual for it to be complete in box, sealed in, you know, Amazing condition, fine. Like, I guess, like, there's some collectible aspect to that alone, but these prices are out, out of control. Like, out of control. Yes, they absolutely are. So, are we going to see a flood of people putting their old, or what they believe to be their old collectible games that might be worth something? Are they going to bring them to the market to fetch a dollar? Is this going to be some rapidly escalating, you know, video game collectible bubble? Are, are well, the prices going to hit stupid heights for everything? At this point, given these prices, I mean, the enjoyment I get out of the games, I can get on an emulator. I Like, I have no problem saying that now. Like, there's part of me that's just kind of like, you know, it's just a couple of pieces of plastic. I'm not that attached to it. Like, I, you know, I was attached to the game itself, but not to the actual physical copy. If I could get a hundred thousand dollars, like, granted, none of my stuff is in, you know, pristine condition, like all this stuff says, like, you know, a lot of the games I also purchased used and didn't have it complete in box because I just bought it just so I could play the game, you know, because as Mike the Legend mentioned a couple times, you know, we're a little bit older. So ROM technology wasn't really always there <laughs> for some of these games that we you know, might have, but still like, I have I have a few completed in box games. They might not be in perfect condition, but if I could get a thousand dollars for you know something that I spent five dollars on fifteen twenty years ago, <laughs> like that seems like a pretty good investment to me. Is there anything you have in your collection where you'd be you know I mean probably most of your collection it sounds like you'd be okay with uh, parting with, but is there anything that you'd look? Add and go. You know what? Maybe that's the the one that might fetch the top dollar. So I'll just put it out there, like like your Conquer's Bad Fur Day or something like that. Would you yeah, actually maybe. attempt putting that up? I don't know. Maybe though. Realistically, like I find selling stuff like that to be a pain in the ass, and like I don't, I don't know if I you know care enough about doing that. Like if someone you know, where they're like, you know, really like, unless I could be guaranteed, it's like, well, if you get like, you could get 200 grand for that easy. I might then be like, Oh, okay. Well, I'd be stupid not to. Right. But yeah, I guess it's that it's the, it's a careful balance. 
It is a careful balance, and uh, I, I think we should uh, take a moment to reiterate to anyone listening who is hearing us talk about these prices for these games that they perhaps have in their own collection and might start scrounging around and thinking, hey, I, I can turn these old games I have that have been sitting in shoeboxes and in closets for years, and I can turn around and just sell them and make, you know, you know, even maybe even something close to these crazy amounts. No. These versions that are fetching these crazy prices at the high end, the low end, and in between are still sealed. You know, they are basically mint in box and they have been professionally graded. And those are all important factors. Yeah. Well, there's also, you know, the, the tinfoil hat goes on at this point for me. When I look at some of this stuff, I start to think, is Heritage Auctions a money laundering website? Like, is this literally like money laundering efforts at this point? That's a good question. Uh, like, I don't, I don't want to cast any aspersions or anything or like, you know, make any sort of like false accusations. But like, when you look at like, especially like, even if you look at Skyrim going for $600, like, there's something up with that. Like, who in the right mind is doing that? Like, who who is spending this money legitimately on this type of thing? Uh, quite possibly someone who thinks they can turn around and sell it in a couple of years to, uh, to make double, if not triple, what they paid for it, but... Or someone that has a bunch of money that they gained illegally that they want to turn around and kind of, hmm... Like maybe they're getting a kickback after from Heritage Auctions or the auctionee or whatever... Like, it, it seems very, you know, it doesn't seem on the up and up is all I'm going to say. Now, that tinfoil hat line of thinking can also uh, be expanded uh, to other auction houses. Anyone who deals in, you know, high-end collectible art or sculptures or comic books, uh, classic car auctions, anything of that nature. Anything where there's highly collectible materials going for, you know, uh, very high prices and very high values. Um, yes. I, well, I mean, I, like, I, I, yeah, like, don't get me wrong though. Like I, I do get the, you know, the collector mindset while I don't share it with the collectors, I can, like, I, I do know that it's a real thing and people, you know, if they're trying to, you know, complete a collection of a thing, like I need to have every Porsche from this year or something fine. Like people are going to spend crazy amounts of money and, you know, just, making that collection happen. I mean, hell, look at like Jay Leno. Like Jay Leno, exactly, with his crazy garage where he's got, what, a thousand cars or something insane at this point? Yeah, where he just, you know, keeps buying collectible cars because he likes having collectible cars. That's just yeah. his thing. Yeah, so, yeah, he's got the money to do it. He does it. It's super wasteful in my opinion, but still, it's his money. I suppose he can do whatever he wants with it. And I get it. But I'm, I'm more looking at like that lower range. Cause that seems sketchy to me. Again, like, like you said, that, that seems more in the lines of like, what the hell's going on here? Like $600 for a sealed copy of Skyrim? Are you serious? Yeah, the $600 amount isn't, uh, and that, you know, 10, 11 year old copy of Red Dead Redemption or Skyrim. Uh, unless there's something that makes those specific copies of those specific games super rare, super collectible. Uh, and at this point, I don't know what it would take to make those two specific copies super rare and super collectible. 
they're not really going to be attracting the, the high-end collector market, I don't think, because the people who have the money and have come in in recent years to the collectible gaming sphere have made their money in collectible cards, Pokemon, baseball, football, whatever, cars, art, sneakers, whatever, and are finding that there's just better prices and better returns currently on video games. So they're coming in with their, you know, big pocketbooks and uh, big bank accounts. But they're also looking for, you know, the best return. What is the return going to be on a copy of Skyrim that's sold for $600? Who who would want to pay $1,200 for it or anything more than that? Yeah. Or, yeah, I don't know. Like, especially with these, like, when it's disc-based media, like, it could be sealed... But you'd still think that it wouldn't be like hermetically sealed. Like, like shrink wrapping is not like, you know, crazy temperature control hermetic sealing situation that will protect even like the oxidization of like the disc or anything. Like there's still an amount of air inside that, that cavity there that's going to at some point make the disc degrade. Like, I don't know. Like it's, it's not the same thing as art because art can be restored and art can be, you know, like art has the actual brush strokes of the real painter right there. Whereas these are just copies of things. Like these are effectively like if a print of art were to sell for a crazy amount of money because it was the first time a print was made. Like that seems insane, doesn't it? Slightly. I mean, these are they are printed as a part of a very automated process. So it's not like an artisanal copy of uh, Skyrim, you know, is going to fetch a $600 price point. There's no such thing. These are mass produced in large quantities. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I don't want to think about the collector mindset. It just kind of frustrates me again. Like, as I said, the older I get, the more I see these things as a huge waste of money that, you know, if you're if you're spending money like that to that level on things like this like there's there's a, there's a hole in your in in you somewhere that can't be filled with anything <laughs> basically like there there's something actually wrong with you and yeah it's yeah that that's all I'll say like i i fully understand what you're saying and uh yeah, I mean, where the collectible market goes from here, who, who the hell knows? I don't know, but uh, I just know that these prices, uh, both at the high end and also the low end, uh, going for way too much goddamn money, and none of it makes sense. None of it makes sense. I'm going to stay on the sidelines and simply uh, talk about them and bring them up here on this program because that's the uh, safest space to, to bring it up in. Otherwise, I would just drive myself insane looking at the uh, final sale prices for these things on the Heritage Auctions website. Yeah. But uh, let's move on to the uh, main news item of this program. It's been the main news item uh, basically in every corner of the gaming sphere over the past several days since our last episode came to air, came to came to market, if you will. And that being the news, the announcement, the reveal that Valve is getting into the hardware market, specifically the handheld gaming market, with the reveal this week of the Valve Steam Deck, which I have to be very careful because my brain always always reads it in a very lewd manner. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which I will not share on this program. It's, uh, you know, rated E for everyone, this program is, but uh, you can figure Ish. out... 
It will. It's not PG. It's fine. PG, sometimes PG-13, but not a hard R. That's a different podcast. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but the Valve Steam Deck, uh, has been revealed. It has been shown off. It, uh, has been shown to exist. It has life and is apparently set for some form of release this December. Uh, and we have lots to say on this topic, as we had lots to say on uh, Nintendo's reveal of the Switch OLED model last week. So, uh, I'll just let, uh, uh, Dennis here share his thoughts first and, uh, we'll just kind of go back and forth and, uh, each share our own thoughts, but, uh, I'll, I'll pass the talking stick to you. Sure. So <laughs> it's actually funny. The way that I actually heard this news was, um, I, I follow, you know, the, the humor website, the hard times on Facebook and, you know, I follow their video game offshoot, the hard drive, um, and I saw they posted on the hard drive, um, Valve, annou- Valve announces the Switch Pro, which really cracked me up. <laughs> and I was, I, I thought, what? <laughs> well, obviously I knew they were joking about something. I read it, but then I, after I saw this thing, I then looked into it a little bit more and who boy. So on the one hand, cool. You get, you know, access to your, like Valve, like your, your Steam library finally, you know, in a handheld form. And also they have like, albeit it's in an a la carte form, they have a dock system that you can actually buy or at the very least, you know, at the lowest level, there's some sort of adapter you can buy, which is just USB to HDMI and then you can plug it into your TV. Very reminiscent of the Nintendo Switch. And they have those uh, Steam controllers that they, I guess you can use with it as well. You know, but yeah, when I look at the thing, I the first thought obviously is, huh. Looks like a Nintendo Switch, kind of. But then my next thought was, it doesn't look comfortable like the Switch. And my other thought was, how heavy is that thing going to be? <laughs> and then, you know, just to kind of like, you know, get all my thoughts out there at the same time, after reading a little bit more into it, I was reading, oh, because it's, you know, a Linux-based architecture and stuff. What level of compatibility is it going to have with the vast majority of games in Steam, probably not very high if it's Linux based. You know, the, we have a little bit of a discussion about that coming in a minute or two, but those are my all initial thoughts. And I guess I'll pass the talking stick back now. <laughs> uh, thank you. And I'll just uh, pick up on some of the points you've uh, made there. As you mentioned, uh, you kind of heard of this through the hard drive uh, again with the uh, headline Valve announces the Switch Pro. Uh, when I kind of logged onto social media, I believe it was what, Wednesday? Uh, Wednesday or Thursday when this news came out about Valve, uh, showing off this piece of hardware. Uh, I kind of clicked on the, you know, hashtag of Switch, or, or of, uh, Switch Deck, uh, or Steam Deck, rather, to, uh, just find out what the hell was going on. What the hell is a Steam Deck? Never heard of this thing. And one of the first uh, blurbs, first headlines I came across was from the hard drive that just said Valve announces the Switch Pro. I'm like, what? What the hell? So I clicked onto it, not realizing, oh, wait, yes. Took a, took a moment to realize, no, it's the parody site, not an right, actual hard news drive. site. Yeah. Right. It's not like Polygon or something. No, no, it's, it's no. hard drive. It's hard drive. It's not Ars Technica. It's not Kotaku. It's not Bloomberg. Nothing of the sort. No, it's, yes, it's, it's parody. It's comedy. And then I quickly realized, oh, wait, this is, not a true article. And then soon saw and realized, hey, wait, this is actually a real thing. Huh. 
Uh, it looks uncomfortable. I'm fully in agreement with you. The, it, it looks like it's chunky. Like it looks like the backside is going to have some weight to it because of the guts that have to be on the inside of this device. But my other thought was that just aesthetically, uh, and in terms of industrial design, it's ugly. It, it does yeah. not look good. It looks, looks like what happened when the, uh, uh, you know, Sega Game Gear and the Wii U decided to bump uglies and this is what happened. Yeah. I mean, like, brutalist is the wrong term, but it's like, it's inelegant. Yeah, like industrial design in terms of like video game and like consumer electronics have evolved for a reason usually. Like there's there's ergonomics to take into account, there's just general, you know, design sense that people have and this very much looks like a thing that would have been on a shelf in 1994. 94, I'd say all the way up to the early 2000s too. Yeah, but by that point, you know, the, things were getting a little bit more gray and, you know, a little bit, uh, like the, the lines were becoming a little bit cleaner at that point by 2000. True. True. Like I, I think 94 is when, you know, all of like the, the, the weird silver and, um, wood, wood paneling of the 70s and 80s had cleared out and, you know, everything was black for a good like eight years. Discmans, Walkmans, television sets, uh, game systems, I mean, not counting Nintendo, of course, but like, you know, Sega and, you know. Well, Sega with the Genesis and the Sega CD and then eventually 32X, but then you look, the Panasonic 3DO, uh, the yeah, CEI. The, the Atari Jaguar. Oh god, the, yes, the Atari Jaguar. Uh, but so- yeah, that's, and v- most VCRs were black. Um, like, like stereo systems and things, boom boxes, everything was kind of like black with these types of like weird, like over exaggerated, like, like beveled edges that were just a notch away from being fully square, <laughs> you know, with like weird, like plastic, like they look like seam lines, but they're, you know, almost decorative just to look like seam lines or very, very strange. Like a very, very, it's, it's 90s to me. Like I, I had, I had Walkmans and stereos that looked very much like this. You had a Game Gear that looked very much like this. You know, the Sega Genesis looked very much like this, but just industrial design, like it might have looked cool at the time, but people didn't really see stuff like that yet. But then we've evolved away from that in terms of design. Like that's not where we're at right now. And it looks very old. It does, uh, with its, you know, straight ahead black approach and not just the coloring too, but, uh, it looks like, uh, it would almost be a, a game machine from some sort of third party company who maybe doesn't have a, a long track record in game, uh, system development. Uh, and so this is what they're producing to cash in on the, all the hype and all the, all the kids being into video games these days. And so this is what they would produce now. Not to say it's going to be of the same quality. Obviously, it's not. Valve has, I think, a decent track record. Um, they haven't really dipped their toes into hardware too much because when you run Steam and you just wake up every morning and you make tens of millions of dollars that day from Steam, you don't really have to do a lot. Fair. But this, uh yeah, it's design-wise not the greatest. Having the uh, control sticks at the top corners strikes me as a design flaw. 
Yeah. I mean, on that note of, you know, them not being in the hardware design game for very long, it really feels like they, because of that, and because they didn't, it doesn't feel like they consulted anyone because there have been 20 years of advancements, well, 30 years of advancement, or even 40 if you go back, like, you know, to the earliest home consoles and things like with Atari 2600 and whatnot of just handheld controller design and ergonomics and, you know, the reasons why you might put buttons in a certain way. And when I look at the buttons on this thing, I just feel my hands cramping up. No, it might be, you know, my age or, you know, whatever, like early onset arthritis or something. <laughs> but still, it's like I look at it and I look at, you know, the, the X, Y, A, B buttons or whatever in the top right corner and just kind of like look at the, the rightmost button that feels like it's like right on the edge. And when you're holding a thing like that, for you to press right on the edge of a thing, like, that's not going to be ergonomic nor comfortable. And if you have to be pressing that button while also holding a shoulder button, like that's, that's not great. Uh, it's not. And it kind of looks like the, uh, as you might be pressing that rightmost button, the B button, uh, that like your thumbs just going to roll right off the machine. Yeah. You know, having the, the position of those controls, uh, control inputs right at the top corners, um, all your weight is right underneath your hands, like not directly underneath your hands, but all the way just, you know, towards the bottom of the machine. So you and I, you know, grew up in a time when there was the Game Boy where you held it by the base and the yeah. buttons were at the base and the screen was ahead of you. Now, I mean, to get aspect ratios, you need a more rectangular shaped screen. You can't do a square, uh, squared off four by three aspect ratio on screen. So I fully understand that, but Look at the design of the Switch. It learned from some of the faux pas of the Wii U where your control inputs and you held it by the top corners. Switch comes along, and even in handheld mode, the uh, control inputs and where you hold it by are more in the middle of the body of the device. Yeah. Which looks to be more comfortable, the the weight being more evenly distributed, like... Basically, the the uh, Steam Deck here looks like you're pinching it from the top corners, which yeah, exactly. isn't great. Combined with the fact that there's shoulder buttons, there's you know uh, interior trigger buttons. I believe two trigger buttons on either side, and underneath each joystick, there's the haptic touchpad for you to, uh, I guess, then probably flip uh, flick your thumb off the uh, joystick. And then move around to give you some semblance or resemblance of mouse control or move a yeah. cursor or do whatever you have to do. So it's a, it's a hell of a thing that, uh, this is what we get. And I mean, it, the idea is for you to be able to take your Steam library on the go. It is basically a, a working computer with a Linux OS. It's a seven inch LCD touchscreen. Uh, gonna be able to do a 1280 by 800 resolution in 16 by 10 aspect ratio, 60 hertz refresh rate, uh, with a battery life that ranges from, from two to eight hours of battery life on a single charge. So depending on what you're playing or how intense a game or demanding a game you're playing, gauge your, uh, run times and battery life accordingly. And I said, uh, when introducing this story that there's, 
uh, an anticipated release date of December of this year. Now, uh, there's a caveat and an asterisk to that release date because that release date um, ha- seems to have shifted, and it all depends, again, on which model of the Steam Deck you're going to get because there's three different models to this device. Yeah. There's the base model, which is uh, $400 US, comes with 64 gigs of internal storage. Uh, next tier up uh, is the $530 US model that includes 250 gigs of uh, SSD internal storage. And then the top tier one at $650 US comes with 512 gigs of internal solid state storage along with anti-glare etched glass. Gauge those prices into your local currency accordingly, but I think for us here as residents of Canada, that $650 model becomes eight, if not close to $900 for the top tier Steam Deck model, which, whew, that's a, that's a, that's a spicy meatball. Yeah, <laughs> yes it is. As they say in some circles. And, of course, a lot of people drawing the comparison to the Switch, and uh, initially, at least, uh, drawing the comparison that this will be a competitor to the Switch, uh, because it is able to output to a TV. The output device that you use to connect your Steam Deck to a uh, to a television, or other sort of monitor, does not come included with the Steam Deck. No, it's all a la carte. Yes, at any model. So even if you're paying for that top-end model with the 512 gigs of internal storage, the anti-glare etched glass, the the all the bells and whistles, you're paying a premium price for a premium device, even then you are still not getting the... I mean, granted, it's just a USB-C to HDMI cable. You can find those easily enough. You know, your local retailer, Newegg, Amazon, Walmart, you know, pick your poison. You can find them easy enough. But still, it does not come included even with that. No. And, yeah, I mean, uh, going back to the other kind of concern that I have is because it's Linux-based, you know, if you're ever going through Steam um, and you look at the uh, the platforms that games are available for, chances are – you're not going to see Linux up on that list very often. <laughs> like you'll, you're going to see windows the vast majority of the time. Like, you know, you're going to, you know, the odd indie game, you'll see Mac OS and, you know, Linux here and there, but the, you know, the vast majority of the library that people are going to want to play is is not going to be, you know, those small indie games. They're going to want to play these big triple A titles. Like, you know, even, even if you're going back 10 years, 11 years, whatever, to playing Skyrim or even just a few years ago for Witcher 3, like, those are the staples. And those, I mean, I own Skyrim, at least, in my Steam library, and I only see the Windows logo in there. But granted, you know, they are trying to uh, remedy that with what sounds to be uh, – well, I, I guess it's open source software that they're putting out there that's – supposed to basically act like a uh, virtual machine called Proton, which is like a layer around this thing called Wine, which, you know, it's been around for a long time in the Linux slash Mac community, which lets you, uh, quote unquote, put or lets you put a piece of Windows targeted software in what they call a wine bottle, 
to let you just, you know, pour out the bottle and play it, you know, in their, uh, like, yes. And yes, they do have all this cutesy language surrounding it, but yeah, so you, you get to pour the bottle into the, the, the container or the, the glass or whatever to play it. Like it's effectively just like, you know, wrapping the bare minimum amount of like mapping from, uh, windows to whatever your platform you're on. So like it can work very well, but it requires a little bit of extra work, you know, basically putting that, you know, wine instructions together. But yeah, I guess that's what Proton's supposed to be. But yeah, it, and it's totally open source, but I'd be very skeptical that you're going to be getting the performance out of it that you would get, you know, from, you know, a regular, uh, Steam based or a, a regular gaming PC that you put together. Like, and I guess that's the other thing that you should probably be, you know, aware of. Like, this is not going to be your top tier gaming. PC, like, yeah, they, they try to sell it like it's going to be, you know, top tier and everything, but it can't be? No, it can't be, because, uh, the, the prices for some of the top, top tier equipment that would go into a top tier gaming rig, uh, are in excess of the $900 price point that even the top model of the Steam Deck runs for. Like, some, like, I would actually say to put a top tier computer together, you might be spending an upwards of 10 times the price of a Steam Deck. So, of course, like there are some, you know, um, tempered expectations that you should have for this thing. But yeah, I mean, I, I have doubts that you would get maybe even a consistent 60 frame per second with this thing or even what 4K output all the time necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, those, of course, will be, uh, uh, to be determined, uh, and, uh, ultimately believed as they are experienced as we get closer towards this actually releasing, which, uh, again, be aware if you have gotten a uh, pre-order or you're looking for a pre-order, pre-orders have already gone live for this, uh, this Steam Deck, uh, regardless of model. And that in itself was a bit of a, a cluster fudge, um, the demand far outstripped the ability of Valve's servers to keep up initially with uh, people seeking pre-orders, but also too in order uh, for Valve to try and ensure that actual real players got these pre-orders and not just uh, unscrupulous scalpers. They had the caveat that you basically had to pay $5 ahead of time to get a, get your place in line to try and get a reservation. And also you had to have made some kind of spurt, uh, purchase with your Steam account in the preceding, what, 24 to 48 hours? Something like that. I think also I saw some people posting complaints on the internet that your, your Steam account has to be of a certain age, but some people were posting screenshots with their 17 year old Steam accounts saying that, you know, their account wasn't old enough, which is crazy. Uh, see, the problem was it was too old. <laughs> no, it wasn't old enough. Because <laughs> bear in mind, Steam also is 18 years old. So unless it would, they were just targeting like, oh, you have to have had an account right from the beginning to get one of these, <laughs> which is insane. Like I could see like putting like a five-year restriction on it, but saying an 18-year restriction on your account, like it has to be one of the OG accounts from when Steam first came out. Like that's like 
that, that's insane. Absolutely insane. And uh, be aware that the uh, pre-orders, the reservations for anything, any version of the Steam uh, Steam Deck uh, that were slated to release in December of this year have basically sold out. And now if you're looking at uh, trying to get a Steam Deck and if you do manage to score a reservation uh, or basically a pre-order for one, uh, bear in mind that the dates have shifted uh, according to an article that was posted to Eurogamer.net by Wesley Yin Poole just the other day, uh, that the base model now has, you know, that base model, 64 gigs of storage, uh, that has a an expected uh, uh, order slash availability of uh, uh, the first quarter of next year. The middle model has an expected availability of uh, the basically middle part, uh, the second quarter of next year. And the uh, top end tier has an expected availability of the third quarter of next year. So, so you're almost waiting a year <laughs> just to potentially get the one of these that you want to get. Yes. Hell of a system. Yeah. Now that being said, I'm sure supply chain issues are plaguing this Steam Deck model as they continue to plague a, a lot of other consumer electronics and uh, other pieces. Uh, or other major industries as well, you know, automotive industry, home appliance industry, things of that nature, uh, because the world just went crazy and is still recovering from going crazy. So that is still having ramifications. But, you know, you mentioned that a top-end gaming rig uh, might go for like 10 times what the top-end model of the Steam Deck uh, is listed at uh, price-wise. The thought I had when this Steam Deck was announced and shown off is that this Steam Deck is a locked-in piece of hardware. It is a console when one of the kind of more important tenants of, uh, or for some people in the PC, you know, gaming universe is that they can upgrade and they can iterate their rig as time goes on. Yeah, exactly. Like, you're... You're going to not get a whole new computer every single time you want to upgrade your computer. Chances are you're going to, you know, you might get a whole new computer every 10 years or so or something like that, but you're probably going to swap out your video card a few times. You're probably going to up the RAM a couple of times. You're probably going to, you know, swap out your hard drive for, you know, something faster or whatever your, you know, maybe the motherboard, you know, for a refresh new CPU. You can incrementally update a computer and basically be constantly up to date by spending a couple hundred bucks every few months, basically. Uh, and I think that's the, the real benefit and the, the reason why a lot of PC people really like the PC side of things. But to me, like, it's always been a little bit of an arms race and th- there's nothing against PC people for that thing. For me personally, I like the console side of things because, yeah, I just, yeah, it's just simple. Like things are, and the the nice thing about at least what I'm trying to say here is a console like the Switch might not be the best, most powerful hardware that you're going to get. But when a game is released for it, it's optimized specifically for that hardware and you know it's going to exactly work. It might not look as good or have the quite the frame rate that a PC might have or be in exactly the resolution, but I know it's just going to work. And there's nothing on me 
that means that I have to troubleshoot my own setup and my own possible stupidity if I, you know, wired in something wrong or, you know, don't have a driver set up correctly or have some weird shader setting that's screwing everything up. It's just going to work. And I don't, there's a weird thing when I look at this and I, like the fact that I see three different steam deck, three of these steam deck models already kind of looks, has me thinking, is there going to be weird tweaking and messing around that you're going to have to do even when you buy one of these things? Uh, I, good question. Not impossible. Um, we don't exactly know what sort of guts are all inside, what parts are being used, because this has only been announced. And But, even, uh, but uh, I mean, guts aside, like, if there's three different configurations you can buy, are the games that you're playing, like, normally, like I said, games are going to be optimized for the specific hardware that they know you're going to be playing on. Like, across the world, there's, you know... No difference in my switch and Joe Blow in Michigan switch and like, you know, some guy in Japan switch. There's no hardware differences. So they can put out one version of a switch game confidently and say it's going to exactly work. And all three of those people are going to have the same experience. If I buy, you know, the lowest model of the, the, the Steam Deck, you buy the middle model and someone else buys the high end model are we all going to have like weird individual different experiences and bugs and like troubleshooting we're all individually have to go through and like settings where we are going to have to manually change for different games that we're playing. Yeah. That seems like it would uh, cause a whole host of headaches and problems. Yeah. Like that's, that's the thing I'm wondering about this. Now that might be, it truly is a first world problem concerns. Like, like, don't get me wrong. And you know, like if, if someone did give me one of these things for Christmas or something, I'd make the best of it or whatever, but still like it kind of like removes the whole convenience aspect of getting one of these things, if that's the case. So I, I'm not saying that's going to be the case. That's just a speculation I have. And uh, ultimately anything uh, at this point is speculation because the uh, Steam Deck has only really been revealed and announced and that's all we know. Um, you know, any sort of more thorough breakdown or technical analysis has yet to come to light. I know IGN uh, did publish a uh, hands-on article uh, with this Steam Deck as they got some sort of exclusive, uh, you know, uh, uh, priority access to the to the hardware itself. I have not had time to read through that article yet, so perhaps uh, in there some of our questions and concerns are uh, addressed. But uh, as we sit here now, it's uh, there are questions. Uh, I know there, uh, the reaction online of, uh, for many people seemed to be positive that this is something they'd be interested in and want to you know pay for and to get and have themselves. But my thought is this kind of strikes me as being similar in the vein, you know. Uh, or something in the vein of like an iPhone or a, a Google Pixel phone or something like that, where it's a piece of hardware that's really just meant to be a gateway to that company's online platform or online storefront. And then the company makes their money off the transactions through that storefront. Yeah, of course. And I don't it, think there's any, any, like, I don't think that's uh th that's a, the hidden agenda or anything. 
Uh, no, no, but, uh, you know, I, as someone who doesn't, uh, does not have a Steam account or a big Steam catalog, you know, uh, uh, some of the appeal is, is muted for me in that aspect. Uh, and also just realized, oh, they're really just trying to sell me on the microtransactions, uh, or the transactions of the games so they can get their cut. Well then, hmm. Also, I kind of would still want the, you know, Mario games if I was to compare this to a Switch. But that's just me and my own personal preference. And if you are someone who has a large Steam catalog that uh, you're tired of not being able to play on the go, uh, you can always send us your thoughts. Uh, email us info at the, uh, at the show.com or you can send us a message through social media. We are on Twitter. We are on Facebook at The Arcade Show on both those platforms. Uh, and yeah, is this something that's going to be of interest to you? Are you going to be shelling out uh, way too much money uh, to purchase somebody's reserved uh, copy or reserved version of the Steam Deck uh, because those reservations are already being put up on the secondary market platforms like eBay and the such and going for stupid amounts of money. Yeah. Yeah, D- despite uh, Valve's best efforts with their various means of trying to cut down on those scalpers, but yeah. Scalping, scalpers be scalping and it's going to happen. So yeah, it is their nature. You can't really uh, fault them for it, but you can still fault them for it. Yeah. But you know, um, yeah, I think we've talked to death about this thing. We'll, we'll wait until, you know, it actually maybe comes out and we see some real person reactions about things. Maybe it will be pleasantly surprised. Maybe the whole steam library will eventually be totally compatible and you can go back 20 years and play something that, you know, you haven't played in 20 years on this thing and it'll operate just as well as, you know, the, the newest and greatest thing, whatever that'll be when this thing is in your hands. Um, perhaps it'll be this next game we're going to talk about. Uh, maybe not, but perhaps it will be, uh, the next game being the, I would say this is maybe the second biggest piece of news that, uh, came out this past week. Second after the Steam Deck, of course, but, uh, a lot of social media was kind of ablaze, you know, with, you know, the memes and the lulls about, you know, the potential of this next game. Uh, and this next game, uh, really, I have many thoughts about it as well, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's, it's Nickelodeon All-Star is what it's called, and or Nickelodeon All-Star Brawl, I should say, is what it's called. And uh, it's basically to Smash Brothers or the PlayStation All-Stars, you know, for Nickelodeon characters instead of Nintendo or Sony characters. Absolutely. It is the uh, standard four-player uh, or up to four-player, you know, uh, cutesy character mascot-y type uh, combat game that we've uh, seen done so well to great effect with Smash Brothers. Um, to some effect with PlayStation, was it All-Star Battle Royale, which was yeah. to date a one-and-done uh, game, one-and-done franchise, but... Uh, I can see something like this, like uh, Nickelodeon All-Star Brawl, maybe having uh, more legs to it, just given the breadth of properties that is under Nickelodeon's control. And you really get uh, get a sense of just how many properties are under the Nickelodeon umbrella, just from the initial 20 characters that are announced in this game. Yeah, but I do have a very, you know, interesting observation based on that. Well, I think it's an interesting observation anyways, based on that. I'll judge your observation. Go ahead. 
yeah, so based on the initial 20 characters, so Nickelodeon, it's still around as a network, correct? Yes. And they are still producing new programs, correct? Correct. And those programs are, by and large, meant to be targeted at children, correct? Correct. So why was it that of the 20 characters, 17 of them were from our childhood? <laughs> Like, like, of the 20 characters that they showed, 17 of them were from, were at least 20 years old. <laughs> at least. So, the characters that, you know, we saw were two of the Ninja Turtles, Michelangelo and Leonardo, Nigel Thornberry from the Wild Thornberries, which I would say is, you know, extending a little bit beyond what, you know, Mike the Legend of Myself would have watched in, you know, our childhood watching Nickelodeon, but uh, I was still aware of it because I had younger siblings who were still watching those at the time. And I remembered it powdered toast man from Ren and Stimpy three characters from SpongeBob, which were SpongeBob himself, Sandy cheeks and Patrick star, um, Oblina from our real monsters, who I would be very surprised if any child right now knows who that is. <laughs> um, Helga from Hey Arnold, Reptar from Rugrats and Zim from Invader Zim. These are all characters I know, you know, we all like older millennials know. <laughs> None of us like older millennials now. Some of us are approaching 40. Like we're in our late 30s. Some of us. These are, this is a Nickelodeon video game. So this, who is there? Who are they targeting? Us? I think very much they are targeting us. Uh, I, I think in terms of, uh, you know, taking their character properties and, uh, placing it in the, uh, the, the gameplay mechanics of, you know, character brawler like a Smash Brothers, I think it's not an accident. I don't think it's a coincidence that they are trying to target us. Um, because my thought when, when reading the news that Nickelodeon was doing a character based brawling game was, huh, that seems weird. Why is Nickelodeon a network that, uh, has programming aimed at a, you know, young audience, you know, young to young adult audience, but primarily, you know, eight to 14, eight to 15 year old audience. Or are they engaging in a video game that is heavily based around, you know, violence and combat? Not really their style. And then seeing the character listing and then uh, seeing the, the intro trailer and all that just makes me think, oh, yeah, this is just a really big nostalgia play. Yeah. I mean, no, but is it, though? Because having said that, though, there were three characters that they mentioned that I had no idea who they were. Like two characters from a show called The Loud House, Lucy Loud and Lincoln Loud. Don't know what that is. And Danny Phantom. I also don't know what that is. Haven't looked into it. But, I mean, they're not things that I recognize at all. I so, I do recognize Danny Phantom and, and the program Danny Phantom, I think, was in early 2000s. Uh, like maybe a 2002, 2003 animated uh, program from Nickelodeon. I think okay, so. Created you know, and developed by Butch Hartman. Okay, so maybe just a little bit after, you know, the Wild Thornberries and whatnot and SpongeBob SquarePants and stuff, I suppose. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, just a little bit out of our range, but not that, you know, wild and crazy. Loud House, I have no idea what the hell that's all about. N none whatsoever. Yeah, and so 
uh, what I want to point out too is we're just talk, kind of talking about dates and ages of things. You might think, oh, well, you know, the three characters from a SpongeBob. Well, why, you know, that's you know a, a show for kids now. Why are you familiar with those characters? Because SpongeBob's been on for twenty goddamn years. SpongeBob's been on for twenty three years. Which Michael is, Legend and I were both in high school when that show started. So, yeah, SpongeBob are, is an old show. It started yeah. many moons ago. It's just yeah. been going for that entire time. Sorry, it started in 1999. So, like, that was, you know, not to, you know, date us too much here, but Mike, the legend and myself were both in grade 11 when that came out. Uh, no, we were in grade nine. In 1999? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Oh, my God. Grade nine. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> I remember when we graduated. Apparently, you don't, but uh, that's okay, as long as one of us remembers. Well, it might be grade 10, because we graduated in 2002, but yeah. Uh, I think uh, we were, uh, like, uh, we, we would have started in the fall of, uh, like, for us, grade nine would have started in the fall of 98, and we finished it in June of 99. Okay. And then, you know, grade 10 would have started that in fall of 99, started that to, or ended it in 2000. Yes. but Okay. So like right at the end of grade nine is when it started. Yeah. So it was around and, and, you know, even though it was intended to be, you know, for younger children, you know, it still had that thing. You know, Cause a lot of us grew up watching Nickelodeon programs like Rocco's Modern Life and Hey Arnold and, you know, a lot of those other shows that kind of came out at the same time, like, well, Rugrats also, Rugrats is a very old show when we're talking about it. Rugrats is one of the original Nicktoons along with Ren and Stimpy. Yeah. Like Rugrats, 1991. Um, Ren and Stimpy, I think is about the same time. And I think Doug was the uh, third of the original Nicktoon, Nicktoons. Like, yeah. uh, you know, animated series, you know, done and produced and aired on Nickelodeon. That's what a Nicktoon is or was and still is. So, um, yeah. So, but yeah, like, uh, <laughs> yeah, these are, these are all very old shows. But then I looked up the Loud House. The Loud House is only five years old. <laughs> so maybe they're not. I mean, th- this first trailer makes it seem like they're targeting us older millennials, but maybe they are going to be trying to cast a wider net by having some other shows. But like, is this, it's a very strange thing. Like, I don't know what other characters are going to have in it, but I do get the impression that they're really kind of trying to play on us older millennials who, you know, were around when Nickelodeon first started and really grew up watching weird old Nickelodeon shows. And have grown into uh, people who, you know, uh, play and purchase video games and enjoy fighting game mechanics or, you know, just combat brawling mechanics in video games as well. Yeah. Uh, I'd imagine uh, one of the other plays and angles that uh, Nickelodeon is taking for this game are going to be the DLC packs. Yeah, probably. Yeah, like inevitably, uh, there's might be 20, you know, the initial character list is 20 deep. Uh, I'm sure there'll be, you know, 10, if not 20 more characters announced between now and when this game comes out in the fall of this year. It's set to come out on the PS4, PS5, uh, version, the Xbox Series X and Series S, uh, Xbox One and the Switch. So that's all good. Uh, no mention of PC or Steam, so. Gauge your Steam Deck purchases accordingly. 
but uh, All-Star Brawl is going to have 20 levels based on Nickelodeon shows, you know, like the Jellyfish Fields from SpongeBob or the Technodrome stage from Turtles. And interestingly enough, uh, the Turtles uh, that were shown in the trailer, Michelangelo and Leonardo, they are the original designs from the first animated series of Ninja Turtles, which started back in the late 80s. Yeah, which predates Nickelodeon. Yes, it does. Now, you might be wondering, how the hell does that work? Well, Nickelodeon bought the the property of the Turtles, I think, what, 10 years ago now? Yeah, about that, I'd say. Or maybe it might be more than that. Time's a goddamn blur. Yeah. But uh, they, they did purchase it from, uh, I think, uh, not Kevin Eastman, but I think they purchased it from Peter Laird, who yeah. bought the... the Bought Kevin Eastman's half of the, uh, you know, rights to the turtles and then sold it a couple years later for a sweet coin, uh, a, you know, pretty mint coin to Nickelodeon. But, I mean, in terms of character expansion, I'd imagine we see the other turtle characters, at the very least, Donatello and Raphael appear. I'd imagine we see maybe Ren and Stimpy themselves appear as playable characters. I'd imagine we see Heifer and some other characters uh, from Rocco's Modern Life. Yeah. But like, also, I, the fact that they had Powdered Toast Man as the character that they showed <laughs> from Ren and Stimpy in this ad is just mind-boggling to me. What <laughs> child now would know who Powdered Toast Man is? Uh, absolutely none, unless they are a child of an older millennial uh, who perhaps were forced to watch old Ren and Stimpy because that's what their parents enjoyed watching, too. Um I don't know. I'm just spitballing here, but I have to say, including Powdered Toast Man strikes me as a rather inspired choice. Yeah, I thought so as well. Like, it might as well be that horse who, you know, whatever. They just used him to just ask him various questions and have him go, well, sir, I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, um, yeah, so that, that's a thing that's coming out. I don't think we have the release date other than fall 2021, as we said. But yeah, they, they haven't specified it. It's still just fall 2021. It's uh, basically coming to every major console platform, PCs and uh, other, you know, releases to be figured out accordingly. But, uh, yeah, we will uh, let you know of more characters as they are added, because this is going to be an insane game that uh, you and I are both going to just kind of keep an eye towards, because it's it's a ridiculous concept. Yeah. And well, it's, it's, it's Smash Brothers, but like Nickelodeon characters. Yes, and Nickelodeon has a lot of properties and a lot of franchises under their umbrella that they've accumulated over the past 30 years of existence. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot they can pull from. We'll see uh, what else they choose, but uh, uh, we have one last actual news item to get to on this program, and we'll just kind of get to it quickly here to, to, you know, have a feel good news item as we've been talking about money a lot of, you know, this uh, episode and also in uh, past episodes as well as, you know, a lot of money being spent in stupid directions, be it perhaps on a Steam Deck, uh, if that's not your cup of tea, or perhaps in the collectible video game sphere, but uh, some good money being spent and raised by the people uh, at Games Done Quick, who recently wrapped up their summer Games Done Quick event, which ran for seven days as it's a seven-day speedrunning uh, telethon. Uh, many, many people, many speedrunners contributing their time, their efforts, their speedruns, 
uh, to the event over the course of seven days, which has people donating from all around the world. And this year's event managed to raise $2.8 million for Doctors Without Borders, which, if you aren't aware, is a very worthwhile organization that provides medical assistance to those affected by conflict, disasters, epidemics, or exclusion from healthcare. And this year's event, much like last year's event, was done entirely virtually because of the ongoing COVID pandemic, which uh, in some places is getting better, in some places getting worse, even though things have already opened up. Uh, whatever the situation might be, as I think, uh, many of them are, uh, located in the United States. Many of the, uh, participants in the, the Games Done Quick community are in the United States. Perhaps they weren't allowed to travel, didn't feel safe to travel. Whatever the case, it was just easy to go and do a virtual event again. So they did. And, uh, yeah, $2.8 million raised. So, uh, uh, good on them. Good on everyone involved once again at the Games Done Quick uh, Foundation or organization. Yeah, super good on them. And yeah, as always, you know, if you want to catch up on some of the uh, speed runs that you missed, if you missed it or you just want to watch it again, just find a link to it on our website, thearcadeshow.com. We've got, you know, a link to, you know, some stuff there. You can check it out. Indeed we do, but uh, we also have uh, one last piece of business to get to on this week's program. It, of course, being the blast from the past, the portion of the show where we, where we take some time to fet things celebrating milestone anniversaries. Uh, we have three items this week. Two are movies. One is an album. Uh, and on our rundown, I didn't really put them in any particular order. So as I turn the floor back over to Dennis to get his starting point, I'm curious to see where he will want to begin. Well, we could probably go newest to oldest in this case, I think. All right. The newest takes us all the way back to the halcyon days of June 21st of 2006, a whopping 15 years ago. Uh, that is when uh, one-time indie writer-director turned mainstream, but still, you know, trying to hold on to his indie roots uh, and also Jersey roots, uh, director <laughs> Kevin Smith uh, released a sequel to his breakout indie film. Uh, he released Clerks 2 Unto the World, and uh, it is a direct sequel to the original Clerks film, which came out in 1994. Yeah, so Clerks 2, um, yeah, I mean, the thing about Kevin Smith movies is you're either going to like them or you're going to hate them. If you hate them, like, he's very divisive, I find, in that sense, exactly like Quentin Tarantino. Like, the with often similar criticisms between the two of them, they both like to be very wordy with their dialogue, like, in an unrealistic way. Like, I like it, but I know it can be very off-putting. I know, for example, like, I, I my girlfriend had never seen the original Clerks, and I, I love the original Clerks. Like, it's a classic movie to me. We watched it, and she didn't like it. She was like, it was weird. Like, the dialogue was very, like, it's just like, oh, and everyone just says so much, and it's just, there's scene after scene of people saying so much, and just... It's like, okay, I get it, but I think it does set some stuff up in a very interesting way. And then having said that, though, we watched Dogma together as well, and she really liked Dogma. So I guess, you know, it the, the formula sometimes works, the formula doesn't sometimes work. But I think Clerks 2, for me, falls somewhere in the middle of my ranking of his stuff. Like, it's not the worst 
it's not the best. It's just kind of like an okay Kevin Smith movie, I think. I think that's a, a fair assessment. Uh, I, I can certainly see where you're coming from. It, uh, I, I think also too, what uh, might work against Clerks 2 in its appreciation is that Clerks 1 is actually, if you enjoy it, such a good movie. Yeah. And it just was so, so contained that Clerks 2 didn't really feel like it needed to be something that happened. No, like it was like the whole point of Clerks was basically, well, I mean, there was an alternate ending that in some ways would have been way better for the movie, which we won't get into, but it's, it was way darker and like bananas, but yeah. Um, yeah, it, it, it ultimately though, but the, the actual ending that they came up with for the original Clerks, it wrapped everything up perfectly. This is literally one of those instances where I think maybe Kevin Smith wanted to recapture lightning in a bottle or something and just, you know, really wanted to like, like, I don't actually know who he was servicing in this, you know, with this. Cause I don't know if this is a thing that, you know, fans of the original would have wanted or, or what, like it, it felt maybe purely, um, not egotistical, but almost like just an exercise for himself. And I, I think that that this type of exercise became has become very prevalent for Kevin Smith to do. But I want to say that Clerks Two is the point that like made it obvious that this is when it was starting. Yes, uh, and uh, the first couple of Kevin Smith movies, uh, you know, in his filmography, uh, you know, really got him going, and uh, you know, he had commercial success with uh, some of those, and so he was able to make some bigger movies. But maybe he just wanted to try and stay to his roots, even though. Like the world, uh, you know, around him had changed, and the world's view of him had changed, and maybe this was just a an attempt to maybe get back to the old feel of things, you know, bring the old, uh, you know, band back together, if you will, uh, because many of the people who uh, appeared in the first movie are back in the second movie. I mean, Kevin Smith reprises his role as Silent Bob. Jason Mewes is back as Jay, the two stoner slackers who just hang out. You know, out in front of whatever store in Jersey, basically just, you know, looking to score some weed and also chicks. Well, I, I think it's worth bringing up the View Askewniverse. So View Askew is, you know, Kevin Smith's, the name of Kevin Smith's production company. And I don't think that's a name that he came up with, but it's sort of what people call the, the shared universe that several of his movies live in. And to a point, like up until Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back in 2001, I would say that that was like from like that's five movies: Clerk, Small Rats, Chasing Amy, Dogma, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. Up to that point, every one of those movies was an original movie, and they were all tied together because Jay and Silent Bob were always in them, you know, in some capacity. Each one was a very self-contained story that introduced new characters and new ideas. I I don't want to say this, but I have a suspicion that in 2006, like, from what I remember, I mean, we're going back 20 years, so it's a little bit hazy at this point, but I think he said he wanted to kind of retire the Viewisk universe in 2001 and start making other movies. And that's when he ended up coming out with, I believe it was Jersey Girl. Ah, uh, yes, the uh, the big uh, uh, 
uh, flop, uh, that starred Ben Affleck, Jennifer Lopez, and also George Carlin that, uh, uh, he took a lot of flack for. Yeah. But yeah, he, he did also a couple of movies as well that weren't in this view of Skewniverse, like, including, you know, Zack and Miri make a porno and whatever else. And I think none of those movies did as well as Jane Silent Bob Strike Back and Dogma did. Cause he became sort of a household name when those two movies came out. Like, so I think, like you said, Clerks 2 kind of saw him, like, I don't, I don't want to say this, but I feel like what it felt like was he was maybe tired of trying new things and just decided to kind of rest on his laurels a bit. I don't know if that's fair to say, but that's sort of what it felt like a bit because from 2000, like, Clerks 2, you know, he brought the Viewersk universe back despite the fact that I think he wanted to not keep it going. And then, you know, he did a couple, like, then he did the Jay and Silent Bob reboot a few years later, and he has Clerks 3 penned in for a TBA release date, and then Twilight of the Mallrats for another TBA release date as well. Neither one of those, I don't know if they're actually in production, but still. It's kind of like, do you need to make a third Clerks movie or a second Mallrats movie? But that's just all that aside. He did make a for sure. He made a second Clerks movie, and yeah, was it as good as the first? I don't think so. Like filmmaking wise, yeah, he had way more budget. It was in full color. He had Rosario Dawson in it. Like, like there was, like it looks better. And it, you know, sounds better and like it feels more like a professional movie, but I don't think it's a better movie. It feels very much like a retread of the, uh, uh, you know, storyline wise, maybe the first one and, uh, some other, you know, Kevin Smith element or other elements from the, uh, VSQ universe in there. Like almost like he was going back to school. Or like trying to go back to school as somebody who's already graduated to still kind of uh, live that school life because those were the better days, quote unquote. Yeah. Yeah, that's really what it felt like. Because the storyline wise, uh, you know, again, uh, you know, uh, Brian O'Halloran and Jeff Anderson reprise their roles from the first movie as Dante and Randall, and they're still just slackers working dead end jobs. Yeah. Like the whole point of the first movie was that, you know, they were slackers working dead end jobs and kind of coming to terms with that. The whole point of the second movie was now they're older, but they're slackers working dead end jobs and they're coming to terms with that. Like that, like it doesn't, it didn't really do anything for bringing the overall story of these characters forward anymore. No, it really didn't. And if anything, I'd say maybe set them back given that they've aged and the characters aged, you know, you know, 15 years from the first movie, but they're still doing the same thing. Yeah. You know, they're very much still the same characters doing the same thing plenty of room for character growth or to develop character growth in those 15 years. Uh, but you know, none really happened. I mean, it's, it's an enjoyable movie. It's got its funny moments, but it's, it, it feels like a, uh, almost like an indie band went to, you know, major label. Well, it feels like an indie band who 
have gone major label and like moved on decided to go back and re-record their first album or something. Yes, uh, but they're doing it with uh, their, you know, major label uh, uh, accoutrement, their major label production, the big name producer, you know, the access to a, a string quartet or something like that. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, like I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's some level. If you're a fan, there's a level of enjoyment you'll get from it, but it's not like don't expect anything new from it. Is basically all I'm going to say. Uh, no, and uh, I think that's a, a fair uh, way to put it and uh, a nice way to put a pin in that. And uh, we'll just move back a couple more years from that movie, which came out in 2006. We'll go back to the halcyon days of uh, July 19th, 1991, because that was the day that uh, uh, another another movie based around, you know, Teenage Slackers at the time came out, but this one was a sequel that, while it didn't really do much to evolve the characters, was still uh, close enough to its uh, original movie that it made sense for the characters to still be in that same vein, same mold, same mindset. This is Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Yeah, so I'll fully admit, this is not a movie I've seen. I saw the original Bill and Ted. And I think I might have seen bits and pieces of this movie, but I haven't seen this whole movie all the way through. And I keep saying I need to do that because, <laughs> you know, I do want to see the third one as well. Um, but yeah, Bill and Ted, like they, um, they're, they're definitely a relic of a different time. Yes, I mean, the the premise of Bill and Ted is that they were teenage slackers from the 80s whose life revolved around music. Yeah. And, and trying to, quote-unquote, hit it big with their band Wild Stallions. And then, of course, in the first movie, uh, uh, they, or Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Thank you, my mind blanked on that. Thank you, Wikipedia. Uh, but in the first movie, you know, Wild, crazy things happen in that they're visited, you know, from the future by George Carlin, who says that they are going to be the ones to bring humanity together, and they just have to write the, you know, the song that will unite all of humanity. So get on that. But first they had to pass their history final, and then they go on a journey through time, meet a whole bunch of famous uh, historical figures, and, you know, have one big rock out at the end. Yeah. You know, <laughs> typical 80s, uh, you know, a uh, movie that just goes way the hell off in a different direction, but kind of works and has a certain charm because of it. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, there, there's something very charming about bringing Mozart into, you know, at the time, the modern 1980, whatever it was, nine or whatever, and just putting him in front of like, you know, a wall of synthesizers and seeing what would happen. <laughs> or was it Beethoven? Uh, I don't remember if it was both Mozart or Beethoven, but yeah. Yeah. And uh, in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, uh, the wrinkle is that uh, Bill and Ted, uh, they meet a new adversary slash eventually new travel companion in the form of Death. Uh, death slash this form of the Grim Reaper, played by William Sadler, who kind of is a, uh, I guess, parody, is a version or a portrayal that parodies, you know, Death from The Seventh Seal, the the very classic movie that uh, was made by Ing Ingmar Bergman and came out in the 50s. Yeah. So this is a play on that in the 80s. And 
I mean, this journey as well goes off the rails in ridiculous directions of uh, Bill and Ted basically being killed, replaced by evil robot Bill and Ted's, and then the real Bill and Ted have to go on a journey to, uh, you know, save the babes and save the day and get back and uh, to their real lives and, you know, the journey of writing the song that will unite all of humanity. Uh, George Carlin is back in it. Uh, the addition of a death, uh, as played by William Sadler, is a really entertaining aspect to this because uh, they're... Like it, it becomes a third. He becomes a third wheel to the the buddy aspect of it, but he's such an yeah. awkward buddy. But it is endearing. <laughs> it is worth your time to check out. Uh, and then, of course, has you know the big crescendo at the end where everything's fine. They save the day. I think they bring more historical figures back. Uh, and you know this one, uh, this film introduced the character of Death as played by William William Sadler. Who then reply, reprised the role of Death in the, uh, the, you know, third film in this trilogy. I don't know if it's an intended trilogy or not, but Bill and Ted Face the Music, which you might not have seen because it came out in August of last year, which full on pandemic times, full on lockdown times. So don't worry if you missed it. I believe it is available for streaming. I have watched it on Netflix. It was an enjoyable third part to this, uh, this trilogy. Yeah, that's generally what I've heard. I mean, it, it's a nice, uh, cap on the whole franchise. I'd say so. It's a feel good endeavor. It, uh, yeah. isn't, you know, perhaps the, the most necessary one, but you know what? It, it doesn't, uh, doesn't do anything to offend you or do anything to, uh, you know, ruin or sully your feelings or memory about the franchise. So yeah, well worth checking out Bill and Ted's bogus journey. And then. Watch Bill and Ted Face the Music. Again, it's on Netflix. It's probably on Hulu. It's, I mean, there, there's so many ways to watch things these days. Pretty sure you can find a way to watch Bill and Ted Face the Music. Yeah. But we have one last item to get to here in our Blast from the Past as we are going much further back in time. Sadly, we are not using a phone booth to travel back in time. Uh, unlike Bill and Ted, we're just using it with our, with our minds and going back to July 21st, 1971. That is the day that, uh, this band who, uh, are really some of the forebearers of and forefathers of the heavy metal sound came out with their third album. This is Master of Reality from Black Sabbath. Yeah. Um, so for me personally, this, this was the first Black Sabbath album I became familiar with when I was a child as, you know, my dad had a couple of Black Sabbath albums on LP, but we didn't have a record player, but he had this one on tape and we had cassette decks. So I would listen to this one a bunch. And, um, yeah, it's, whereas, I think they were kind of finding their ground and really helping to establish this metal thing, this heavy metal thing in their first couple of albums. By the time this third album, you know, rolled around, they had exactly their whole thing kind of figured out and like it all came together and it was very, in a very consistent fashion. I mean, Paranoid's great, Paranoid's classic, but Master of Reality, I think saw them really expanding what could be done with this quote unquote heavy metal sound. Um, as they, this was the first album that they, they tuned down one and a half steps. Um, you know, because Tony Iommi famously had a very, you know, awful industrial accident 
Um, I, I believe it was in his last week at a job working at a steel mill, chopped off the tips of two of his fingers on his fretting hand. And as a result, you know, instead of stopping playing, he kind of like, you know, used ingenuity and, you know, fashioned himself some fake fingertips, but playing a guitar with regular strings tuned up to the standard tuning was too hard. So he tuned it, tuned the strings down most out of necessity and to make it easier for him to play. But that also had the side effect of when you're tuning a little bit lower, everything sounds a lot more doomier, gloomier, bigger even. And this is that first album where everything kind of started to have that real stoner metal type vibe. And in many ways, people think this is the first stoner metal album as well as a result. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, certainly because there's a couple tracks on the album as I, you know, have listened to it in past where it feels like if you were listening to this uh, contemporaneously, you know, bought it from the record store, you know, not long after it came out in July 1971, take it back, you could be sitting in your chair, perhaps your beanbag chair, you know, your big headphones on and just feel like you're melting into the chair. Like there's a couple tracks on this album that uh, just make you feel like you're melting into a chair and a couple tracks that uh, just sound like you are uh, being dragged into uh, the void of hell. Yeah. Those two tracks in particular, I know the ones you're talking about, both songs and their respective sides of the album. When you look at the original LP pressing, the first side ends with children of the grave and the second side ends with into the void, both of which super heavy songs, even by today's standards, like you listen to them and it's just like, wow, those are killer heavy riffs. Like they still sound kind of modern as well. And yeah, it's, I I can't really say anything but high praise for this album. It's a great album. It's it holds up if you like heavy metal but have not heard this album, you're doing yourself a great disservice. And yes, the first track on the album is Sweet Leaf, which uh, is basically them uh singing about marijuana. Uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> which which was a taboo thing in the 70s. Yeah. No, we you know, fast forward 50 years and there's uh at least where we live, there's easy access to legal purchasable cannabis products. Yeah. Um, that was not the case in 1971. No, it was still, anywhere in the world. <laughs> still very much, uh, you know, uh, a black market thing, you know, uh, where you, it would be frowned upon if you're doing such things. You know, there's obviously some, some great failing in your moral, moral character that you've turned to the devil's grass uh, to smoke your jazz cigarettes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Oh, jazz cigarettes. I think that's, I think that's my favorite, um, euphemism for cannabis. It's just, it's so funny and it's, everyone knows exactly, even if you've never heard that phrase before, you know exactly what you're talking about. Like there's no ambiguity there. Yeah. Like, oh, just weed is, uh, it also makes weed sound like it was just such an ingrained part of the jazz uh, music movement. That they were the only ones to, you know, smoke jazz cigarettes or whatnot. No, it was more widespread than that. But, uh, and and you mentioned too, this was the third album. I think I may have mentioned too, this was the third album by Black Sabbath. Even just pulling up their discography, the run of albums they banged out year after year after year in the early seventies is ridiculous. Yeah. Because their first four albums spanned three years. 
Yep. So they didn't stop working, uh, uh, basically for those first couple years. Yeah, and then it was an album a year, you know, starting with Master of Reality in 71, Volume 4 in 1972, Sabbath Bloody Sabbath in 73, and then they took a year break, not break, um, they, well, it's a very interesting read, I can say, like, off to the side, Tony Iommi's um, autobiography called Iron Man, where he talks about, you know, all of their escapades as a band, <laughs> and apparently... The production of Sabotage is where things really started to kind of go way off the rails when they really started to get into cocaine heavily. And yeah, this one took like, I think a little bit of like extra time. Uh, yeah. And it was also that one took a little bit of extra time. Anyways, cocaine's a hell of a drug is basically all I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> and it really contributed to, um, the greatness of and the downfall of Black Sabbath in general. Uh, this is true. Uh, eventually leading to, uh, or the band eventually uh, losing Ozzy, uh, Ozzy Osbourne as the singer, bringing in Ronnie James Dio for a couple albums, which were still solid albums. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, eventually Ozzy returned and all that, blah, blah, blah. But, yeah, the first couple of Black Sabbath albums especially Master of Reality, still hold up after all this time. 50 years later, um, Master of Reality, Black, Black Sabbath's third album, well worth your time, well worth your listening, well worth your effort. And uh, that's about all we have to say about that. <laughs> yes. To to quote the the late, great fictional character, Forrest Gump. <laughs> I don't know if he's late, great. That's ridiculous of me to say. Um, yeah, Forrest Gump. He lives forever in our hearts. <laughs> Yes, and on you know probably TBS <laughs> on the TV station, some at some point, once a year at least, <laughs> which of course paralyzes me because anytime I I tune in and uh, to whatever point in the movie that Forrest Gump is on when it's airing on TV, I just have to just sit and watch it, and then if it loops back around and starts again, well then I'm starting from the beginning again. Yeah, it's just one of those stupid movies where it's like well. I guess I'm watching Forrest Gump for the rest of the afternoon. Great. Uh, granted, I don't have cable TV, thankfully. Um, but if I did, and, you know, if I was scrolling around and Forrest Gump was on, I'm in the same boat. Yep. So uh, goodbye plans I had for that day. It's a Forrest Gump kind of day. <laughs> yes. But uh, that about wraps us up for this week's episode of The Arcade. We thank you so much for joining us for all of this time. Once again, you lovely listeners, you ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we thank you so much. Uh, again, we hope we didn't take up too much of your time, although this is still a lot of time. We didn't plan it to be this way, but, you know, it's a, it's a supersized episode, and ultimately, you're getting what you paid for, and we hope you enjoyed it all the same. As we mentioned earlier, uh, we want to hear your thoughts on things, are you going to be looking into a Steam Deck, either of the three models? Are you interested in the Nickelodeon All-Star Brawl game? What characters would you want to see from your favorite Nickelodeon programs included in that game? Let us know your thoughts on those and anything else. You can email us info at thearcadeshow.com, as well as let us know through social media. We're on Twitter and Facebook at The Arcade Show, both those platforms, as evil as they are, ultimately. Yes, we still need pages on them. And if you haven't done so already, subscribe yourself or subscribe a loved one to really show that you love them and care about them by subscribing them to our program. We are on 
iTunes, we are on Google Podcasts, and direct links to our pages on both of those platforms can be found of our home on our homepage of the arcadeshow.com. So until next time, good night everybody. Good night. <laughs> 